I'll come to God in prayer now and ask him for his help as we come to his word. Let's pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, you are the sovereign and almighty God. Uh, You have chosen to reveal yourself to us in this word, the Bible, so please help me to be faithful in preaching your word now. Help us all to listen to what you are saying to us so that we might be equipped now to live lives that honour our Lord Jesus. In his name, amen. Well, what do you think is the number one reason that missionaries choose to go home from the mission field? Perhaps illness, homesickness, persecution, lack of money? Well, it's actually not any of those things. The number one reason that missionaries choose to go home is conflict with other missionaries. That's right, conflict with other missionaries. Now, that's a sad reality, but it reminds us of what can happen when sinful and flawed people seek to work together in team ministry. Whether it's a missionary team, a a church staff team, a GSF team, a kids club team, youth group team, a, a welcoming roster, the risk of conflict is always there. Now, This doesn't mean we should give up on team ministry. A well-functioning team is a great blessing. In fact, the New Testament model uh, that we are to follow is clearly one of team ministry. We see this in Jesus' ministry with his disciples. Uh, We see it in the many gospel co-workers that Paul speaks of in his various letters. Uh, One scholar notes that uh, at least 55 men and 17 women in the New Testament, are associated with Paul in his various missionary journeys. So team ministry is good and it's biblical. So, But what this sad fact does mean is that when it comes to serving in teams, we need some help and some hope from God. And that's what I think of this account of Paul and Barnabas' split does for us tonight. It gives us an opportunity to learn from their experience so that we can be prepared for the reality of conflict in ministry. But the events recorded following their split also give us hope that our sovereign God can bring good in moments where conflict has actually already happened. So that's how I'm going to break up the passage tonight. A sad example to learn from, a sovereign God to hope in. So first, a sad example to learn from, Paul and Barnabas split up. Uh, It's always sad to see a thriving partnership come to an end. Just think about the countless teenagers who were weeping when One Direction split up. But it's not just something we read about in pop culture online, it's split ups are something we actually experience firsthand. I'm sure there are a number of you who have experienced personally the pain of a split, perhaps the end of a dating relationship or even marriage, or the end of a long-term friendship or business partnership. Splits are painful. But the split up between Paul and Barnabas shows us that ministry partnerships are not immune from that pain. If two of the greatest evangelists of church history can clash heads, it can happen to us. So we should take a moment to think about what actually happens here. 
So let's first think about the context to uh, this split up between Paul and Barnabas. In verse 36, we read, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Uh, Having already preached the gospel to the people groups uh, living in the region of Cyprus, Pamphylia and Galatia that you see on the map there, Paul thinks it's wise now to return to the churches that they visited, uh, they preached at, to go and visit them. They could spend some time there in teaching them and encouraging them. Uh, It would also give them a chance to pass on the decisions of the Jerusalem Council, which we heard about last week. The decision which reaffirmed the true message of the gospel that they had already received which made clear that salvation came through faith in Jesus alone, not through works of the Old Testament law. So how do we go so quickly from a a good desire to visit new churches to a bitter split between ministry partners? Well, verse 37 tells us where the clash comes. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. So the two men agree on the trip, but they clash over the travel companion. So who was John Mark anyway, and why was he causing these long-term gospel partners to lock horns so furiously? Well, some of you might recall that John Mark had actually accompanied Paul and Barnabas in the early stages of that first mission trip. We read about it in Acts chapter 13. In verse 5 of that chapter, uh, Luke tells us that John was with them there as their helper. But if we read a little further along in Acts 13, we see that John the helper becomes John the deserter. Look at what Luke records for us following the first stage of that mission trip in Acts 13, 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia where John left them to return to Jerusalem. See, John Mark had let the team down in the past, but now he wanted a chance to redeem himself. So let's think for a moment catch up where my slides are up to. Let's think for a moment where, okay, that one's where we're up to. Let's think for a moment where both Paul and Barnabas are coming from here. See, on the one hand, you've got, I'm trying to keep up, Barnabas, that one there. Now, he wants to give John Mark a second chance. And this really fits with Barnabas's overall character. We're told in Acts 4 verse 36 that his name Barnabas was given to him by the apostles because it means son of encouragement. He loved to encourage people. Barnabas had actually been one of the first to give Paul, who was called Saul originally, a second chance. When Saul first came to Jerusalem after his conversion, all the other believers in that city were reluctant to welcome him because they knew he had persecuted Christians. But in Acts chapter 9, verse 27, we read that it was Barnabas who took Paul in 
and brought him to the disciples. So you can almost imagine Barnabas saying, Paul, look, John Mark wants to change. He's owned his failure. This is our moment to help him grow. I mean, he's my cousin, which we read of in Colossians 4. He's my cousin. I'll take personal responsibility for him. I'll help him in this task. But you see, on the other hand, we've got Paul. And he wants to take no chances here. Where Barnabas seeks to encourage the man, Paul seeks to protect the mission. It's almost like Paul is saying, Barnabas, we need to be able to trust our whole team. You know how dangerous this can be. You know what stamina is required. I mean, we've been burnt by him in the past. What if this happens again? And did you have to escort him all the way back home? Well, suddenly our missionary team is kind of decimated. Our preaching capacity is cut in half. And there's no way he's coming. Now, it's important to see that the the text doesn't make any comments on who's actually more in the right here. In fact, it would seem that both men have admirable principles. And but that's how it goes sometimes, isn't it? Two good but competing intentions cause a clash. Paul and Barnabas had stuck together through severe persecution in Iconium and Lystra, They had stuck together through uh, when the message of the gospel came under threat in the lead-up to the Jerusalem Council. But it's actually here in this moment, over this young man, where these two partners split. Look at verse 39 to 40. When they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company, Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, the Greek word behind the phrase sharp disagreement in verse 39, that's used elsewhere in the Bible to describe anger, irritation, exasperation. No matter which way you slice this, This incident is not pleasant. And it reminds us that Paul and Barnabas were human like us. They too could feel hurt or misunderstood by a friend. They too could feel anger, irritation, frustration with a fellow believer. And so these two battle-hardened gospel workers have to reach a compromise. And with the blessing of The church in Antioch, they part ways and divide up that visitation mission in two. We can see it on this map where they go. Barnabas and John Mark visit the new churches to the southwest, heading towards Cyprus. Paul takes Silas, a Jewish believer from Jerusalem, and they head northwest overland to the Galatian churches that we read about. In Acts 14, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. What's worth pausing at this point to consider the reality of conflict in team ministry? Because I think that this passage highlights that. I think what deserves immediate comment is the fact that Luke, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Acts, 
doesn't actually hide or paper over this moment. As embarrassing as it may have been for the early church, this moment is actually deliberately included for all future disciples of Jesus to see and to learn from. And I think we do need to learn from this split up because if we're honest, most of us know how easily we could get rubbed up the wrong way by someone that we serve with in ministry. You know, it could be someone within the pastoral staff team, the youth group leadership team, the GSF leadership team, welcome roster. All it takes is a clash of vision, a thoughtless comment, an overlooked good idea or deed, and suddenly there's friction. See, the first lesson of this incident is that we are to expect clashes in team ministry at some level because the potential for conflict is always there. For example, let's say that you send an email to your Bible study co-leader offering uh, a suggestion on how to cultivate a sense of uh, connectedness within the group. You've thought about it a lot, you've emailed off your suggestion, and then this reply comes back. Now, you could read that in this way. Hi, thanks for your suggestion. It was interesting. Speak soon. But, you know, depending on the day, I suspect most of us might be inclined to read it like this. Hi, thanks for your suggestion. It was um, interesting. Speak soon. You see, with that, you're now thinking, what does he mean by interesting? I know he has other ideas. Is he just fobbing off my idea? Why, why such a short reply? Has he even read my suggestion? And why no smiley emoji? I always finish my emails with a smiley to let him know that I'm kind of a happy person. Now, in theory, no actual wrongdoing has happened at this point, but already you've reached a level of irritation with a gospel co-worker. And that tells us again that what happens to Paul and Barnabas can easily happen to us. Tensions in team ministry come because we are fallen people living in a fallen world. Paul Aiken, who is an assistant professor of Christian missions, he wrote a helpful article in the Gospel Coalition a few years ago. And in the article, Aiken talks about the conflict equation in ministry teams. In the conflict equation, you have sinful people plus sinful colleagues plus sinful people they are trying to reach or serve equals lots of sinful people and potential for conflict. See, when you sign up to be an elder or pastor, when you become a leader in youth group or kids club or in GSF, when you join a roster at church, you're stepping into that equation. And it's helpful to acknowledge that reality. And you see, add to that equation different personalities, different visions, life stress, comparison and jealousy, and suddenly you realize how vulnerable we are to a Paul and Barnabas-style conflict and split up. 
And all this tells us that we need to prepare for the clashes, whether they be small or big, now. And I'll just offer three, three ways we can prepare before we move on. Some of this came from Aiken's article. You know, first, we can prepare by being realistic about team ministry. We need to remember that tensions will probably occur at some level when we work with other sinful people like us. And see, that will stop us from being crushed beyond repair when sin and struggle come about within our teams. Again, if it could happen to Paul and Barnabas, it can happen to us. But second, we prepare by being adaptable and flexible, not with compromising the gospel, of course, but in most cases, your co-leaders, co-servers, will want the same things you do. They'll want Christ to be taught clearly. They'll want people to be loved well. You just might be disagreeing on the how of it all. So just keep that in mind and be humble enough to listen to other people and even incorporate some of their suggestions. And third, we, need to be, we, need, we prepare by being prayerful. We need to keep asking God to be cultivating in us the fruits of the Spirit so that when tensions and conflict do arise, we'll actually act in a way that honours God. So as you're praying for your various ministries, pray for your relationships with those you serve alongside in them, that you might continue to be patient with them Kind, self-controlled, gentle. And actually, what I've loved about all my years at Bundy is just how little I've actually seen major conflict happen within the vast amount of ministries we have in our church. And in fact, this has been one of the big things I've been thankful for as we've all walked through this moment of COVID together, this moment of physical separation. Because in many ways, from an earthly point of view, this moment has a lot of things working against our unity. There's extra stress, the possibility for lots of miscommunication as we try to engage with each other online. There's various opinions, I assume, on what is the best road ahead. But amidst all of this, in God's kindness, I've actually seen an abundance of unity as we walk this path together. So we should be thankful, but prepared. But what if you've already been through the pain of conflict in team ministry? What if, like Paul and Barnabas, you've already been through a ministry conflict or tension of some sort? And I'm sure that there are some of you who are listening where that's the case. Well, what you need to see from the rest of this passage is that there is actually hope beyond a painful ministry experience and split even because God is sovereign and God is kind. So let's consider that second point on our outline if you're following along there. A sovereign God to hope in. You see, Luke not only gives us a snapshot of ministry conflict, he also gives us a snapshot of how our sovereign God works this moment for good. You see, out of the ashes of conflict, God raises up three new and encouraging developments 
One, mission activity is doubled. Two, a new partnership is formed. And three, the new churches grow in faith and number. These three blessings work together to show us that not even ministry conflict can frustrate God's plans to achieve his good purpose for his people and the proclamation of the gospel. And we're going to take those three one at a time. Now, I had a a cousin growing up who would always refuse to say, good luck. He was a staunch believer in God's sovereignty, and so instead he would always say, providential blessings. Uh, Providence is a word that just describes God's care and control over all things, and so let's think about providential blessing number one. The mission activity is doubled. Uh, We saw in verse 39 to 41 uh, that instead of there only being one mission team led by Paul and Barnabas, now, after that incident, there are two. Paul and Silas, who headed northwest, Barnabas and John Mark, who head southwest. See, two things can be true at once here. The, The conflict and split was very unpleasant the doubling of ministry activity that came from it was very good. And actually, in God's timing, I think both Paul and Barnabas were well-primed to be leading now two separate teams. They had the experience of a mission trip under their belts. They had seen the joys of gospel belief. They had taken the hits of gospel persecution. God had actually been preparing them during their time together for their time apart. Through painful circumstances, the sovereign God had doubled the mission activity of the early church. But providential blessing number two, a new partnership is formed. Uh, Paul had split up with one partner, but he was to team up with another partner. In fact, one of his most faithful and beloved partners of his ministry. In God's providence, a gap had been created in Paul's mission team which allowed a young man named Timothy to sign up. And we're first introduced to Timothy in verses 1 to 2 of chapter 16. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra where a disciple named Timothy lived whose mother was Jewish and a believer but whose father was Greek. The believers in Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Now, like many of you, I I suspect, Timothy grew up in the faith. Uh, We know from 2 Timothy chapter 1 that he was taught about Christ from his uh, mother Eunice and grandmother Lois. Both of those women were Jewish people who had come to believe in the Lord Jesus, God's Messiah and King. Now, there was something about Timothy's faith that seemed to catch the attention of many believers within the neighboring regions of Iconium and Lystra. Now, maybe it was Timothy's Christ-like kindness, his patience, his service. Maybe particularly, it was his ability to teach Christ to others. But whatever it was, Paul was convinced by Timothy too. And so he recruits him for the mission ahead. Verse 3 shows us what was involved in that. 
Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew his father was a Greek. Now, I can sense some of uh, the men out there wincing, and one does wonder whether Paul mentioned the topic of circumcision before or after Timothy had formally agreed to go. But regardless of that, the fact that Paul has Timothy go through the Jewish ritual of circumcision is actually worthy of a little bit more consideration. You see, at first read, it seems that, <clears throat> it seems odd that Paul requires Timothy to be circumcised. I mean, only last week, we, we saw at the beginning of Acts chapter 15 how opposed Paul was to the idea of circumcision when certain members from the Jerusalem church came up to the non-Jewish believers in Antioch and said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So what's happening here is, is Paul being inconsistent? Well, no, he isn't. The two very different contexts between chapter 15 and chapter 16 make that clear. You see, at the beginning of chapter 15, Paul opposes the idea of circumcision because it was being falsely taught that it was a necessary requirement for the non-Jewish believers in Jesus to be fully saved. But in Acts 16 here, Paul has Timothy circumcised so that it would remove a huge cultural barrier to many of the unbelieving Jews they were trying to reach. You see, to many of those Jews, knowing that Timothy, who was in fact Jewish himself through his mother, knowing that Timothy wasn't circumcised would have been an immediate reason for suspicion and resistance, even before Paul opened his mouth to share the gospel. You see, in Acts 15, a clear theological issue was at stake. But here in Acts 16, what was at stake was how unbelieving Jews might best be won for Christ. Just as Christian freedom caused Paul to oppose circumcision in Acts 15, this same freedom allowed him to remove the stumbling block of Timothy's lack of circumcision. See, Paul was applying his principle from 1 Corinthians chapter 9 here, though I am free, I belong to no one and belong to no one. I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. Later he says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. And I think Timothy's willingness to go through circumcision in an ancient world with ancient surgical equipment for the sake of the gospel is one example of what made him such a rich blessing to Paul's ministry. And actually, years beyond this moment, Paul would refer to Timothy as his true son in the faith. Paul loved Timothy like a son. You see, Paul had split up with Barnabas, but in God's providence, he was to team up with Timothy. Well, providential blessing number three. The new churches grow in faith and number. And this is really, this blessing is really the result of the first two blessings. 
because mission activity had doubled, because Paul was now in a thriving partnership with Timothy, the gospel advanced. And as such, the new churches were strengthened in faith and they grew in number as more locals believed in Jesus. You see that in verse 4 and 5. As they travelled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Together, Paul and Timothy and Silas encouraged the new churches in Galatia with the gospel, passing on the encouraging affirmation of the Jerusalem council that salvation comes through faith in Jesus alone. And where that gospel went out, the church grew. You see, in his great sovereign power, God had brought good from a seemingly bad situation. Mission activity was doubled. A new partnership was formed and the early church was strengthened. See, this passage shows us that with our sovereign God, there's actually always hope beyond conflict in ministry teams. It reminds us of the truth of Romans 8.28 that God does indeed work all things, even a bitter split between gospel workers for the good of those who love him. God can bring good from what seems to be bad. And we, we know this from the message of the cross. It was through the horror of the cross of Christ that God provided a way for our sins to be washed away, forgiven. And, judge, and the judgment we deserved replaced by the eternal life that we don't deserve. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, that's actually the great work of God that you need to believe in tonight, that you need to hear, that life is found in trusting in the crucified and risen Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus reminds us that God is sovereign and really can bring good from what we might think is a hopeless situation. So to those of you who have been through the grief of a falling out with a ministry co-worker, Well, you need to know that like Barnabas and Paul, God is still able to bring good from even that mess. God's still committed to you. He still loves you. A bit over a week ago, J.I. Packer, a faithful Christian writer and teacher, passed away, age 94. Uh, I'm reading one of his books at the moment with another guy from 5pm service, Knowing God. It's a good book. Uh, But during Packer's long and faithful ministry, he too had an experience uh, where he split with another long-time partner in the gospel. After partnering for a long time with Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was himself also an influential and faithful Christian leader, the two men parted ways over the issue of how much cooperation there should be with denominations who were drifting away from biblical authority. Our Packer tended to lean towards maintaining ties, whereas Lloyd-Jones wanted to cut off all ties. And I've been thinking about how similar both of these men might have been in character to Paul and Barnabas this week. Yet even after this public, and I assume somewhat painful, split, 
God continued to bless the wider church through the preaching and teaching of both of these men, as he did with Paul and Barnabas. And actually, one of the things I noticed as I was reading through the obituaries on Packer this week was the generous heart that remained for the man that he had uh, a falling out with us, as it were. See, Packer would later write of Lloyd-Jones that he was the greatest man I ever knew. Not just brilliant, but wise. See, I don't think you're going to hear a statement like that from a disgruntled member of One Direction. I don't think you hear that sort of thing coming out of the world. That's the sort of thing that the Spirit of God can bring about in the aftermath of a painful split in Christian ministry teams. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't just have the power to reconcile sinners to God, as amazing as that is. It has the power to reconcile sinners to each other. And actually, this is what you see in the relational triangle that was Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. There was, or there appears to have been, healing in the end. See, in time, Paul was able to speak of Barnabas as a a fellow worker with him who shared in his struggles, 1 Corinthians 9. In time, Paul was able to speak of John Mark, who he had felt deserted by, betrayed by, as a fellow worker and helpful in his ministry. God had not only brought about gospel fruit in the aftermath of this split, his spirit had also brought about reconciliation and renewed relationships. So if you've been through the grief of a ministry conflict, let me encourage you just with three parting things. To keep trusting in your sovereign God and ask that he would bring good from a seemingly bad situation and sustain and encourage you in the process. To keep persevering where you can, keep serving where you can. Now you may need somewhat of a break to rest and recover if you've been through the trauma of a, of a really ugly split. But it is good to come back to service in time because it's good to use your various gifts to love God's people. Now that may look different to the way you've served in the past or it may look the same. But the thing about Paul and Barnabas is that they didn't give up on gospel ministry completely after this. You see, even though they had experienced something that I imagine was quite discouraging at the time, it just seems as though they were convinced that the gospel need was bigger than their argument and that God's good plan of salvation was bigger than that uncomfortable moment. So ask for God to help you so that conflict isn't the final word on your Christian service. And finally, keep showing love and grace to those you've had a falling out with. Ask that God's Spirit would help you and the other person or people in that task. Where you need to repent, do so. Where you need to forgive, do so. Where you need to simply trust God with an entirely complex situation that seems to have no immediate clear way forward, do so. Knowing that God is sovereign, that he's kind, and will in his own timing which you may never see, work out all things 
for good. The gospel of Jesus assures us that God is committed to this. Well, tonight's passage gives us a sad example to learn from, but it points us to a sovereign God to hope in. So I'm going to close in prayer to that sovereign God. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are indeed our sovereign and good God. Thank you that we can entrust all things, even the pain of ministry conflict, into your hands. Thank you for your kindness to us at Bundy. In your mercy, please keep all our ministry teams from conflict and bitter division. May we be like our Saviour who died for us, humble, gracious, and kind as we work together for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.